Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. From Autosport.com and Autosport Magazine, I'm Martin Lee. This is the Autosport Podcast. Well, our boss, Kev, otherwise known as Autosport's chief editor, somewhat more respectfully, he loves a ruddy list. He's always making lists. He does it for fun. So we're starting a new podcast series out every Thursday, which will make fellow list lovers very happy. You'll no doubt have an opinion on all of these podcasts, and today we're starting with a biggie, the top 10 Ferrari drivers of all time. Well, Kevin, alongside Grand Prix editor Alex, and our latest addition to Autosports F1 team, Matt Q, have a lot to say on the matter, so stay tuned. Hey, before we start, a big thanks to Autosports podcast sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp Online Therapy. Now, we talk about better help a lot on this podcast over the last few weeks and this month we're discussing some of the stigmas around mental health many people think therapy is for other people so-called crazy people but therapy doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you it means you recognize that you're human that you have emotions sometimes you need to talk to somebody else about them we've been taught that mental health shouldn't be a part of normal life but that's wrong too we take care of our bodies we go to the gym go for a run go to the doctor we eat the right things but what about looking after what's inside our heads well i can see the stats for the downloads of this podcast and like it or not it's motorsport many people consuming this show 
Amen. And you got to admit, sometimes us guys are not the best at coming forward to say we're struggling or we could do with talking to someone about it. That's where BetterHelp comes in. A customized online therapy solution with video, phone and live chat. So you haven't got to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. And it's way more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched with someone in under under 48 hours who just gets you. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have tried out BetterHelp online therapy we got a special code as we always do with these deals it's betterhelp.com slash autosport give it a try betterhelp.com slash autosport thanks to sponsoring the show today and bringing it to you all right let's get on with the top 10 alex over to you before we dive into our top 10 ranking of the scuderia's f1 racers let's ask the person who's constant list writing and i can see it on my desk one of the lists which is the inspiration for this series to go over how he puts these rankings together. He's also Sports Chief Editor, Kevin Turner. Take it away, Kev. Hi, thank you very much, Alex. Yes, well, as you say, I, that was my Christmas job, was I thought just, you know, when you want to escape the kids and the family and everything, like, oh, I've got this. I've got these lists, I've got to go and do these lists. So uh, You do yeah. a lot of these lists. I, I do. Mean, how do much it. escaping <laughs> you need to do? Yes, yeah, perhaps my wife probably, hopefully, won't listen to this particular episode, but... Um, yeah, so uh, first of all, it's usually just when I'm a bit bored, I start I start a list and just jot down some ideas, and you normally I normally get sort of depending on the list, fifteen, twenty names or races or whatever it is, and then obviously the hard bit of looking up the stats and reading, and in some cases watching videos or whatever it is, doing the research, then writing the entries, and then sometimes when you write the entries, you go, well, now that person seems a bit high, moving it around, and eventually I have to give myself a deadline. To say oh, deadlines are important. Deadlines I, I are enjoy important. them as yes. you know, <laughs> um, And I just uh, right. That's the order, and I and, and I send it and move on to the next one. So yeah, I've almost always got one or several lists on the go at any one time. But this one actually was sparked by um, a discussion after um, Sir Frank Williams uh, died. We did a Williams one. Um, and it did quite well and created a bit of interest and it was quite fun to do. So I thought, well, why don't we do all the all the big teams? So we're doing the big the big six, the six most successful Formula One teams in World Championship history. We are indeed. Now we've we've done these with your lists of you know the greatest cars the Formula One teams have produced uh, in the past on the podcast. Was it was it different doing it with drivers? Was it more fun? What was the sort of how did it how did it feel different for you? It's probably more complicated. It's a bit more difficult doing drivers because humans are a bit more complicated. It's a bit more subjective, isn't it, as well? Just because... Yeah, it probably is. And, you know, normally a car is going to be the same from one... one, You know, it doesn't have an off day or a a good day as such. It's either good or not. I mean, obviously, with modern F1, as you well know, Alex, obviously they change from track to track and they're developing all the time. But but, but humans are much more complex creatures um, and the criteria is probably a little bit more bit more complicated so it is it is harder and it's difficult to keep you i always try and keep it set this isn't like my favorite ferrari drivers it's what i think are the most important two ferrari and the best drivers at ferrari it's not you quite should, the same thing. you should hear what he says about some of them <laughs> <laughs> yes Th- thanks thanks guest number two yeah that mystery voice he's going to be introduced in a moment i think it's just important to say obviously this is it also is a bit of fun really it's almost like the, the chat down the pub sort of thing like what do you think of xyz um, and obviously people take it far too seriously yeah i mean i take it very seriously when i'm putting them together because i really care about the you know the idea isn't just to do a list that i, I want to make this very clear it's not just to be, it's not done to be controversial it's on dig into it as much as I can to come up with what I believe is is the order um, and for these it's also worth pointing out that it is specifically the success that a driver scored with that team and the impact they had on that team so this isn't the list of just the greatest drivers that happened to have sat in a Ferrari it's what they did while they were there 
uh, and that will probably come up as we it go will. through. Who could you as possibly be through, referring to? As we go then? through the entries, uh, well. I think, uh, yeah, that will hopefully become clear. But before we do that, we should probably introduce our second guest on this podcast. Um, he's here to disagree, to argue and generally just annoy Kev, a role he was frankly born to play. It's <laughs> <laughs> Autosports, Matt Q. How are you, Matt? And are you happy with that introduction? I'm very well, thank you, Alex. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not. Uh, I think it's very rude, it's very mean, but if it makes you feel better... Then I'm happy to I'm happy to play the fool, but um I have but to that say that's the role a, you were born to play. <laughs> I have to give a little bit of a preview. Unfortunately, I'm in quite a lot of agreement with Kevin Turner over his ranking, but I will force myself to play the role of devil's advocate and just be deliberately obtuse. Well, and also because these because these lists have been out on autosport.com, we have also got other people who have already given some feedback. So I'm very happy to address their their concerns and and why they're wrong good well we look forward to that or why they might be right but why they're wrong (laughs) well let's get into the top 10 uh, ranking for Ferrari and their uh, their 10 best Formula 1 drivers by Kev so for each entry Kev you're going to explain which driver is in which slot and why and Matt you're going to examine Kev's reasoning and logic hopefully Um, then although plenty of them will come up as we go through the list we'll also assess the drivers didn't quite make the cut Um, but let's kick it off with number 10 it's four time Formula 1 world champion Alain Prost who drove for Ferrari uh, in 1990 1991 started 30 races and won five times but didn't take a title with Ferrari Kev why is he at number 10 yeah so um, I think it's worth saying that there are 39 drivers that have won a world championship race with Ferrari so this was getting it down to the 10 was very tricky uh, and there are nine drivers that have won the world championship with Ferrari and they're not all in here so uh, there are some very good drivers not in the list that we'll, we'll mention later but yeah so Prost for me is one of the one of the greatest Ferrari drivers who didn't win the championship if you look at what they've been doing in the years up to his arrival it'd been sort of the odd win the odd win here and there some of them fantastic Nigel Mats was winning at Hungarian Grand Prix in 1989 and it was one of one of the great races of of the era but I think they really stepped up uh, with the 641 and with Prost arriving in 1990 uh, I think the chassis was probably the best chassis on the grid. McLaren had the Honda, so Senna had the power, and obviously the qualifying focus. Prost had the chassis and the race focus, so it made for a really fascinating championship fight. Um, and I was, you know, looking at the stats in the in the four years prior to his arrival, they'd won six wins, and he won he won five win took five wins in his first his first season with them, and and was in the championship fight until, obviously, famously. He was removed from proceedings at the first corner at Suzuka in 1990, which is something I've mentioned, talked about many times before, and I won't dwell on too much here. Put that quite uh, diplomatically as well. Yes, that's quite. Don't, I, I mean, I could go as far as suggesting it's the worst piece of driving in Formula One history, but that's a different list, which I haven't started. Oh, but maybe, you should do, you maybe should do, I should. That's a good list. The worst pieces of driving yeah. in Formula One history. Yeah, but it'd have to be by a top liner, though, not by a back marker. Ah, uh, sure, sure. You wouldn't want sort of 15 Andrea de Cesaris crashes, would you? No, or something no, That'd be no. a bit rubbish. But yeah, we try and spread the joy a bit. But um, yeah, so I think Prost helped raise Ferrari's game. At that point, they couldn't run two competitive cars. Mansell got the one that could finish races in 89, and Gerhard Berger sat watching the races a lot, and Mansell got the, the Duff car in 90. But um, that was a bit unfortunate. But uh, overall, Prost led the charge. He was the one that took the tart fight to Senna. Um, it was really the first time that, that Ferrari had been in the championship fight for several seasons. Um, of course, the the controversial thing here is that he was sacked by Ferrari. Um, I would suggest that although maybe some of his comments in 1991 were perhaps not very PR friendly about the Ferrari truck, he was correct. And Ferrari sacked their best asset when they got rid of him. And Prost came back to win the championship in 1993 with Williams. And Ferrari continued to wait for the rest of the decade for another chance to get the title. And 
which they didn't get until 2000, of course. So for me, I think his failure to win the championship was as much down to Ferrari and other things happening rather than any weakness on the Prost front. And also, Jean Alessi was another candidate for this. This, So in terms of fever rating, which is another the criteria I sort of brought in a little bit with this, Alessi would probably... Lacey would probably be most people's top 10 favourite Ferrari drivers but even though Prost missed a race and no one thinks he did much good in 91 he still beat Lacey in the standings so and almost won the French Grand Prix so yeah for me it was a sort of he was in the list of heroic Ferrari failures which is why he made just made it in at 10 Yeah Matt what do you think about Prost being at number 10 is it too low too high well, the first, to you make the cut the first thing I have to say about it is the top 10 in, in top 10 entries 10th place is possibly the most important particularly with this one I think no spoiler we, we know who's going to be first really in this list so top 10 is the most important Nicola Larini uh, absolutely <laughs> but he's 10th uh, is most important because that's when you're, you've actually got to commit to something like I, I did in preparation for this podcast to see how much I did or did not agree with Kev I wrote a short list of drivers and that was uh, I think 42 in the end because I included some people who didn't want to race to see if I could sort of argue argue them in and and, and whatever um, so yeah you, you, it's a point where you have to s- stop sitting on a fence what I will do is I can throw a stat at you so five wins uh, from 30 Grand Prix with Ferrari which is a win ratio of 0.17 which actually ranks him fifth of all time by that metric you've got him quite low in this race but um, the the important thing to line out is your criteria for picking this list, as well as their success in the car, is you know what circumstances they left the team in, the you know how how they managed the politicking, and and the fact that Ferrari didn't win a didn't win a title for what nine years after Prost left um, suggests that they made that was the wrong wrong decision to split there. He could have put them in better ingredients, but um, and uh, I suppose well, I'm glad he went because then we got the secret Ligier test him being Eric Comas's doppelganger that's a quite a cool little side story but I don't I don't have any issue I don't think with Prost being in the top 10 but I would have possibly ranked him higher and got rid of another driver elsewhere on the list to make room for someone else in the top 10 and it's up to now whether we want to go into the candidates of people who who could have maybe taken that 10th slot but I would keep Prost in there I think in my final list I think we'll circle back to that once we've gone through Ooh, the, whole of the top ten. Stay tuned. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. Let's move on to number nine. It's Mike Hawthorne, Britain's first Formula One world champion in 1958, who drove for Ferrari between 1953 and 1958. Started 35 races, won three times, and as I said, took that title in 1958. Kev, why is Mike Hawthorne at number nine on this list? Yeah, he was really tricky, uh, and actually, I, Matt's completely right. That sort of the the, the nine ten slot that, for this was the hardest. I think the top end were quite tricky, but the back end of the 10, because there were so many candidates, was was difficult. And Mike, actually, Mike Hawthorne wasn't an, in my original 10, but I did, because Ferrari was so complicated, I did run it past a couple of other couple of other people, and one, one, uh, one contributor, I won't, I won't name them, that's, that's not fair, it was all done in uh, done, done in private, really, but but he made a very good case for, for Mike Hawthorne, and when I really looked at it, I thought, yeah, it does, it, you know, he, he did win three races, um, including... Uh, French Grand Prix 1953 which is renowned as one of the most uh, fantastic races in Grand Prix history it was a, a duel with one running with Fangio's Maserati which, which Hawthorne won the very last lap on the run to the line so yeah that's a cool win to have um, you know he was the first Brit to really make an impact at Ferrari uh, and then although I still believe that Sterling Moss should have been the 1958 world champion four wins to Hawthorne's one you know Hawthorne did he, he did get the job done 
Uh, he was very consistent. You know, he was perhaps known as a man that had his good days and his bad days, but he put enough enough of those days together in '58 to to be world champion. Uh, and the other thing that kind of clinched it for me to get him onto the list was that he pushed quite hard for disc brakes. So the British teams, both in sports car racing and in in Grand Prix racing, so Jaguar in in sports cars and Van Wall uh, in Formula One, uh, which is who Moss was driving for they were much more on top of the disc brakes than, than the other teams in Ferrari. Rarely a, a, an innovator. And Mike had to work quite hard, I think. Obviously, he had experience of the disc brake with Jaguar, one of them more with Jaguar, and he got them to put discs on the Dino. So he was there. For me, he's then playing more than the role of just a, a driver. You know, He's trying to push things forward, leading the team. Uh, and he got the job done and retired. So I thought, yeah, actually, as a Ferrari world champion, he'd, 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 done, his, he'd done his bit. Absolutely. Well, Matt, what do you think about Mike Hawthorne's inclusion at number nine on this list? It's I, I looking mainly at his championship winning season in 1958, where he only got one win, but his other results that counted in the drop scores were pretty strong, like a good run of second places in the in the second half of the season, and also how how much better he did in his other te- than his teammates in in the same car. But but that that year, what he got he got one win. Moss had two. Tony Brooks had had uh, no Moss Moss had four wins. Four, I think. three for Van Wall, one for Cooper. Yeah, uh, Brooks <coughs> Brooks had f- three for Van Wall. So I think you know he Hawthorne's possibly his strongest suit here is that. He's a champion, but I think he was a weak champion, and also his numbers aren't very good. What is it? Uh, three wins from thirty-five races, which is a win ratio of zero point zero nine percent. Again, and that's that's one of the bottom bottom three on well, this let's, list. Can we just correct that's nine percent, right? Nine percent. Because you've done your decimal. Oh, sorry. You move it. You move the. So it's not nine percent of races he won for for. Ferrari. As as we were explaining off there, my my maths uh, has been a downfall <laughs> throughout my life. So apologies for that's why I'm not a why I'm not a darts champion, even though I have the uh, the physique of one. Um, but yeah, so I, I and I just think there's other people on on the periphery of the top ten who have a better hit rate. So it's actually although I keep prosting, it's Hawthorne and the next driver in this list. That I think if I was to argue drivers in, I'd be looking to take out Hawthorne and a driver in eighth place to to make space for them. Well, this seems like the perfect point to bring in the driver in eighth place. It's 2007 world champion Kimi Raikkonen. Drove for Ferrari, of course, in two stints, 2007 to 2009, and of course, 2014 to 2018. Started 151 races for Ferrari, took 10 wins, and of course, that title. Um, but yeah, an enigmatic figure. And as Kev, as you point out in your list, uh, sorry, in the article explaining the list on autosport.com plus, He's more famous for being quicker and better at McLaren, but not winning the title, taking the title with Ferrari, and then it all sorts of it sort of goes downhill from there really doesn't it yeah regular readers and listeners might be surprised that a Kevin Turner sourced list includes Kimi Räikkönen on it because uh, you know I do think he, he spent too long at, at Ferrari not not delivering what he, he was fundamentally capable of the reason he's in the list partly is he, he didn't win that world championship you know there's not many people that get in and win their first Grand Prix that uh, they start for Ferrari. He took the championship in a year where he was right up against Lewis Hamilton, Fernando Alonso. And yes, of course, McLaren mismanaged that. But I quite like the fact that the least political driver in the whole season was the guy that ended up with the with the title. That was quite that's quite cool. He did get the job done. And also, although Felipe Massa got on top of him at points during 2008 and then early 2009, it's interesting how Kimi steps up after Massa's accident at Hungary uh, and and strings a load of good results together, including a slightly fortuitous but also well taken victory at the Belgian Grand Prix um, but I guess the other the other reasons he's in this one it's longevity 
um, you know, 151 starts for Ferrari. It's second most on this list, and I think a, a long-term contribution to a team uh, has to be taken into account. He was world champion, and I think he was widely, you know, widely loved by by lots of fans. So the sort of the the Ferrari fever rating, if you want. Uh, for, so yes, I think he should have delivered more at Ferrari, but I thought he, as a world champion. Uh, and long-term contributor to the team. I thought he, he had to be on there. Well, just before we come to Matt, could you not say with the long-term-ness of Raikkonen being at Ferrari, he's still their most recent world champion. So does he not take some hits for the fact that he was there for most of, you know, for, for, for the majority of the years that have passed since, and yet Ferrari is, is still in the malaise? So why does that not affect his ranking? Well, I think, I think it depends on why Ferrari hasn't won the championships. And we'll get perhaps onto this with some of the candidates... Uh, later on this or other candidates that didn't make it in I'll be interested to see which, which name Matt's going to throw at us in a minute um, so I don't think that you would necessarily blame Kimi for why they haven't won it. I don't think you wouldn't say well, don't you look at the last 10-15 years of Ferrari and say yeah the reason that they didn't win the World Championship is because they had Kimi Raikkonen uh, yeah, I think that would be uh, I think that would be pretty harsh. So yeah, I think in this instance, I wouldn't hold that. I wouldn't hold that against it. But in other circumstances, it might be might be relevant. I'm going I'm to disagree with two points. On that one Ooh. is uh, I was doing I'm doing some research for a piece you recently commissioned me on, Kev. And uh, and although it's not fair to say their last sort of you know what 14 years without a title is solely Raikkonen's fault, there was a lot of sort of reporting around the time of 2009 that his laissez-faire attitude to going racing was quite infectious and that became because at that point he was still effectively the lead driver when Massa Massa you know was obviously injured and and arguably not strong when he came in and was obviously then blown away by by Alonso but you know there was there was a certain maybe mentality although that 2009 season obviously Ferrari just didn't bring anything to the table with without a double diffusion and couldn't rectify it and also I'd say the longevity point is is fair lots of races and and credit to him but in his second stint alongside Vettel it was politically advantageous to keep him on as opposed to being particularly well it was meritocratic but I think his the lack of infighting between Vettel and Raikkonen helped Raikkonen retain that seat probably a year longer than than he should have done and the fact that you know he just in in a car in uh, that was capable of winning a championship he came nowhere near to the other other contenders I don't think the other point I'd add on that about him being second fiddle and and getting decent results over a long stint of time is that Barrichello who is a fair comparison I think through the Alonso and then latterly Levettel years is 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 nowhere near either of our top tens as as far as I'm concerned I think you know as as we've said Raikkonen was better at McLaren you know obviously champion in 2007 well outperformed by Massa in 2008 so I think to him to get eighth place off base, based large off of 18 months of work over a Ferrari career that's spanned what eight eight seasons all told I think there's a a lot of waiting going to a lot of his heavy lifting is going there and then everything else after that is probably probably doing a bit of damage I, I would agree with pretty much all of that so but my my question to you then would be who are your candidates that you would slot in instead one of them, world champion Phil Hill, 1961, just because, okay, the Ferrari Shark Knights 156 was clearly the best car that season at the rule change, but it was just sort of his effectiveness. So I think the year he took the title of 61, I've got two wins and four podiums from the from the seven Grand Prix he, he started of, of the eight that season, and that strike rate is pretty devastating. The other one I keep coming back to is is Jackie Ix, like a two-time world champion that never was, so 68 um, 
where him and probably Amon had a good run at it, but six wins from 55 Grand Prix starts, uh, 11, 11 pole positions. He's, he's a name that I keep sort of uh, keep coming back to on that list. If this was a top 10 Ferrari racing drivers list, Phil Hill would be on it because of his Le Mans successes and yeah. his sports car yes. successes. So, uh, that was something that I looked at but for me he's he's one of the weakest F1 world champions and I obviously mean that with a lot of respect because it's what 34 names I think now um, so you know you're still talking about the you know the cream of the crop but you know I don't think that there rarely in F1 history has there been such a chasm between the best driver and the rest as there was in 1961 with Sterling Moss and the rest uh, I think Wolfgang von Tripps was pretty much on course to win that world title until admittedly his own mistake at Monza uh, unfortunately was, you know, he was killed and as were some spectators after a clash with Jim Clark and Hill you know, such, it's such a dominant car and that was one of course Phil's wins one of his yeah. two wins yeah. you know, and his time at Ferrari you know, three wins one of them at 1960 Italian Grand Prix when the, the British team's boycotted so I mean it was just basically a Ferrari demonstration race two wins in 61 one of which was after his main oppositions were taken out in an accident so for me uh, and of course he was there in 62 when Ferrari went to it all went very badly wrong I mean that's a real low point in Ferrari history I mean it ended up with people leaving and all sorts so uh, yeah for me keeping him out of the list was relatively straightforward as it was F1 based the, the Jackie X one I think is is a good shout um, he, I guess, compared to obviously Kimi and Mike Hawthorne, he didn't he didn't get the championship done. How much of that was down to him? Difficult to say. But also, Ferrari was in a lot worse place when he left them than when he joined. I mean, they were in. Yeah, you know, he wasn't able to. Now, whether that's a failing of Ferrari or him is obviously open to debate. But if you look at what Nicky Lauda did, he came straight in after X and you know Ferrari were on the road to recovery. So X was missing something. But yeah, I think probably. X was in my uh, yeah when we're looking at sort of slots 11 and 12 I would say that, that, that X and another person we haven't talked about yet that we'll probably get to um, were probably the strongest candidates for, for that last slot Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky Lucky? In line at the deli I guess Aha in my dentist's office more than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. As ringleader, Alex, are we allowed to throw around a couple of other names that that didn't get in? I was, very quickly, just for you, I was going to say, were you, when it comes to Hill and Ix, are you getting rid of Raikkonen and Hawthorne or Prost? Which, what's the uh, sort of, are you slotting I, one yeah. in out? Or is it just literally push out number 10 and put someone else in at that slot? I... Okay, I've, I'll, I'll compromise with Kev here. I think if we're going to argue the place of maybe slightly weaker world champions in Formula 1 history, I'll keep Hawthorne in the list at the expense of Phil Hill. But I probably would bump those two people up. I'd take Raikkonen out and I'd have Ix as a, as a number, number 10, I think, on this list. 
sound logic is that fair for, for a change it is fair right let's move on to number seven right, can it just be recorded for history that I have had Kimi Räikkönen in a list that somebody else has argued out. Yeah. So before all the Kimi Räikkönen fans come for me, that was uh, he was in my list. I also <laughs> I also take objection to you saying why oh, he has this cult status, bit of a legend. As people who work in the media, one word answers are particularly unhelpful. So I always I always find that a bit annoying. Dealing with the media wasn't a criteria for the list. Uh, that would be that would be another different uh, another different list, which I'm not going to do. We do have a nice anecdote about. Kimi Raikkonen that involves involves uh, you and I actually in that um, I witnessed I, I witnessed him leaving the Formula One paddock for the last time after his race in Abu Dhabi whilst I was on the phone to you as we were discussing what on earth we do <laughs> with a race the result that's under multiple protests and how we're going to cover it and things like that but I, it was just nice I was I was stood there sort of um, between the media centre and the paddock and coming from the back of the garages was a man in a black t-shirt with a woman his children I think um, another man as well with them who's it was Kimi Raikkonen but I didn't notice until he was literally right here there and he was just like oh Kimmy's off to live his uh, his normal life as a multi-millionaire living in Switzerland doing lots of skiing and he just walked out there's no no fuss no nothing exactly as I'm sure he would have liked and then when Raikkonen realised that Alex Kalinorkas was the last face he'd ever seen a Formula 1 paddock that immediately vindicated his decision to retire I thought you were going <laughs> to say he immediately looked for a new deal to sign for 2022 I, I don't think he had any idea who I was just this man standing on a standing in his way frankly as he was trying to get out anyway right we've, we've gone off on a ridiculous tangent let's go on to number seven extremely famous Formula 1 driver extremely famous Ferrari driver is one Manuel Fangio five time world champion only drove for Ferrari for one season though made seven starts took three wins and won the title in 1956 so why is Fangio at number seven Kev well, so this is a great example of someone who would probably be higher up most people's list of all time great drivers and they would be Ferrari drivers because he's only he only did one one season and he didn't get on terribly well with Ferrari um I think probably because uh you know Enzo did like playing the team drivers off against each other and all that sort of nonsense uh and he you know we'll see not not for the first time uh, not for the last time on this list we'll see someone who was prepared to stand up and point out that was perhaps not the way to do things so I don't think Fangio was hugely appreciative of, of, of Ferrari he had some unreliability problems early in the year which which you can tell in his autobiography irritated him and he actually did request some changes uh, in the team uh, which just goes to show even even Fangio the you know, very respectful fantastic figure you know even yeah that, that mark of a champion you know you, they know what they want and they go about getting it so um, but but he had to be on the list because seven starts three wins and it's like it probably would have been at least five had the car not let him down won the world championship and then left so I think well fair enough um, Ferrari were very fortunate really in 56 because in 55 they'd been blown away by Mercedes their car was nowhere near as good as the Lancia D50 uh, and they didn't really have a driver, I think, to c- compete with Ascari, Fangio or Moss. And then lots of things happened all in one go. Mercedes withdrew, Fangio joined and Lancia went, effectively went bust and handed over all their cars to Ferrari. So it effectively inherited a super team uh, and then they just had to run the cars reliably, which they, they sort of did manage in the end. And Fangio delivered and then left Maserati, spent 1957 beating Ferrari. I have to say I have very little to add to that. It was a you know essentially a marriage of convenience and... Three wins from seven races, so forty three percent is pretty devastating. That you know, obviously that that doesn't continue season after season after season. I don't know if you extrapolate it, but for a for a moment in time, it's brilliant. And what is it? Is where he won his fourth of five titles. So I think it's like that. You know, that cheesy sort of adage that the star that shines twice as bright and he lives half as long as 
brilliant snapshot in time, great achievements, but I don't think you can really use seven Grand Prix as a basis to argue one of the all-time greats. Let's get that absolutely established. I don't think you can use that to argue any higher on a Ferrari-specific list. Well, let's move on to number six. It's Gilles Villeneuve. Ferrari, racing Ferrari between 1977 and 1982, made 66 starts, took six wins, but of course no titles. And this is really interesting, Kev, because it's, you know, he embodies the Ferrari spirit and the legacy and the reputation and all of that, but no success. So it's fascinating where you've placed him on this list, mixing it but, all together. Uh, wrongly no success. Politics in 1979, where he probably could have, should have taken Schecter's title. Oh, I think, well, that's a separate, I'm, I'm working on a piece about that, actually, because uh, I don't think that it's true. But it's a, it, it is the generally accepted storyline that, that, that Gilles spent his time just tooling around behind Jody in 79, which I don't actually think is the case. But the reason that uh, he is he's I find Villeneuve one of the most difficult people to place not just in this list but just in great driver lists some people will think that he's absolutely like up there vying for number one and others say well yeah but he didn't achieve anything and flailing wheels and all the rest of it and he shouldn't even be in the debate I think somewhere in between inevitably and that's why he's slap bang in the middle so yeah you're absolutely right he's there because it can you think of a, an image that's more Ferrari than Giovino sideways, probably in the 81 Turbo with a wheel on the grass? Yeah, and and it's not a surprise that Enzo Ferrari loved him, right? I think he named Villeneuve, Tatsiano Valari, pre-war driver, and Sterling Moss as the three drivers that most impressed him in his career. So, and, you know, and Enzo saw a few drivers. <laughs> so he had to be in the list. I think the wins he took were fantastic. 81 Monaco qualifying, I think he's one of the great... In fact, I did a piece where I... Th- effectively argued that that was the greatest qualifying lap in F1 history uh, and he won the race the following day with a bit of luck he also won the Spanish Grand Prix with a, a line of cars behind him using the power of the Ferrari but showing that he could get through a Grand Prix without making mistakes you know he wasn't the ragged crazy man that I think some people have, have said that he is on the other hand I think he did sh- there were times where perhaps that wheel to win which he absolutely needed in the terrible Ferraris he was given you know, to produce a miracle occasionally, he also stepped the mark a few times. So there were a few bent cars and things. But for me, things like the Dutch Grand Prix in 79. So it's part of the Ferrari legacy and romance that he's, you know, you've this image of him going around, you know, with the wheel flailing around like a huge cotton cotton wheel. But the car's stuffed. Like he drives in and he's like, what are, they, what are you expecting them to do? Rebuild the back end? If you watch that Grand Prix all the way through, it's very clear while he's leading the race that he's got a slow puncture, even before the first spin. You can see that he's got a slow punch. He must know. Someone with his ability would have known that that was that tyre. And he was quite well into... You know, was, there was still a lot of the race left to go. And he's like, no, I've got to win, I've got to win. He, he was only ever going to go one way, which was the tyre was going to go. Uh, as it happens, he had an enormous spin, which is an incredible piece of car control to keep it out of the wall. Then he has his other off and the tyre's flailing and it's all brilliant. Meanwhile, teammate Jody Schechter, who made an absolutely appalling start and drops to 16th, just quietly picks his way through the field, finishes second. If Villeneuve had pitted when he had the puncture, I think he'd have been third at worst, but probably second. And that is how you win championships. So I guess it's what criteria do you like? Do you like that romantic going for the win? And I think we all do like that. We want to see people going for the win. But there's got to be a point when you're a top F1 driver. There's got to be a point when you go, today is the day that I... You know, Fernando Alonso is brilliant at this. He knows what the optimum is on a given day and he makes sure he gets it. Whereas I think Gilles was perhaps always, always reaching for the miracle and sometimes he pulled it off and sometimes he didn't. He would almost certainly have been world champion had he not been killed uh, in practice for the 1982 Belgian Grand Prix. He's so difficult to place because you can't say, you can't rate people by what you think they would have achieved. 
yeah, it's the Stefan Bedoff thing. Would he have been up there, the Senna and Prost and Jill had he lived in the 80s? Probably, but he wasn't actually there. Prost and Senna did win those races and championships, so very difficult to pace. I'm sure Villeneuve fans will be offended massively that he's sick. Other people will be offended that he's there at all. So he's, slap, he's pretty much slap bang in the middle. He's the second best Ferrari driver not to be world champion, in my view. Well, before we come to Matt for your thoughts on Villeneuve, I just want to ask you, Kev, do you think that there's a comparison? Because this has already been made between Villeneuve, his reputation, everything he did with Ferrari or didn't do with Ferrari, and Charles Leclerc in 2022, because he's got that reputation of stunningly fast, oversteps the mark on getting quite frequent now when we think about it. It's this sort of element of his game that he's got to cure those minor errors that end up being quite costly. It has the comparison has already made by people in the past. So do you think do you think that applies or is it just too too different a situation now? Yeah, funnily enough, it's not something I've really thought about. But in terms of consistently high performance when the car's not that competitive, there's perhaps there is a, a bit of a parallel there. Um yeah, I, I, Leclerc obviously isn't as spectacular, but that's as much down to the generation of cars that he's he's driving. You know, he, the Ferraris that he's had haven't been competitive, but they haven't been a rocket ship strapped into a barn door chassis. Twenty nineteen, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh yes, let's not go down the twenty nineteen road. But not, I, not, I, not a rocket ship chassis, but something else. Anyway, no, yeah. So I think I think um, uh, yeah, it's not a comparison. I've really thought of that much, and I, I think that Leclerc will be on this list at some point in the future. I think it's too early to decide where he slots in. You know, Ferrari come out this year or next year with a championship winning car. I think the three people sat here know that he'll, he can deliver a title, providing he knows how to deal with certain front runner in another team. Uh, I think he can be world champion, so I think that will stick him on the list. And if he has years of heroic failure that aren't because of things that he's done, then he could be a candidate for this list as well. And then, well, well perhaps I'll put him with Jill just ahead or just behind depending on how it goes fair enough I'm not allowed to have an opinion on Charles Leclerc because that upsets people apparently um, but Matt Villeneuve number six would you have him higher lower anywhere else I'd probably sit on the fence and keep him about where he is one I think you know Kev you should be proud you've not allowed rose tinted spectacles or let's be honest the, the death of a driver to elevate his status which I think is you know it's, it's obviously a, a difficult subject to broach but I think it can can have an influence I also think you know effectively him having a car that had soaked because of the flat 12 you know really couldn't utilize ground effect during that era I, I don't think that can really be held against him I think you know the the flat 12 was a, a Ferrari staple and and you know the fact it didn't work with the design I don't think that's necessarily his fault it's not as if you know he he didn't bring the team together around that um but he was I think faster than his champion teammate often enough to to you know sort of be mid midway on this list yeah, I think maybe that's also it's a good time to talk about Jody Schechter. Yeah, uh, as why let's he's do not. It. Let's he's, do some more drivers he, he, at Just Must Out. He's the other world champion that didn't make it. So first of all, he wasn't part of the build up. He essentially walked into Ferrari that had a good, as you say, they were on their their run with the in the mid to late seventies with good cars. Generally, I mean, they really they were only thrown off in seventy eight because Lotus moved the goalposts so extensively with ground effects. Um, otherwise, Ferrari, I think, probably would have reeled off yeah more more wins and titles. So. He kind of inherited a, a very good car. He played his cards right. I think when I did, I start, I've started doing analysis on 79. If you go up to the point and including uh, when he clinches the championship at Monza, Monza's the one that people think about because Villeneuve did play the team game and follow him as check to clinch the title because uh, Villeneuve was a very honourable driver. But actually up to that point, I think uh, Jody was marginally ahead on qualifying, both on the averages and the, the shootout numbers. 
and had, had done things like I mentioned the Dutch Grand Prix doing he was doing a champion's job whereas Villeneuve was doing the young hero job so great lineup. Um, so I think he he delivered, but then 1980. I mean, it's got a, it's it is one of the worst title defence in F1 history. And yes, the car was completely uncompetitive, but Villeneuve completely smashed him out of the park, uh, and and he was just incredibly disinterested. Uh, so I think if you spent two years at a team and one of those is really not bringing your A game and getting completely blown away by your teammate. And it's not like you've built that team into the championship winning force. I think for me, he he missed out um, of the list. But you know, he he was in that that fight with with Jackie X for the, sort of the eleventh, twelfth slot. Yeah, I think that that seventy nine season sort of Schechter just played the hand it was dealt, particularly around around drop scores. So what was it? I think it was eight of the fifteen races contributed to the points title, and basically the ones where he wasn't winning or second, he was fourth. Whereas whereas um, Villeneuve was sort of seventh, eighth. So. Yeah, he, he played the game, I guess. Yeah, he did, and you had lots of things going on. So Williams was just becoming a force. But it took a while to get the FWO seven up and running. Obviously, Renault had their turbocharged firework that was very fast, but couldn't finish races sporadically. Actually, we've not mentioned Villeneuve's Dijon race against Rene Arnoux. Which give that just a mention? Is yes, it is mega. Uh, although there is one moment where he swings across the front of the Renault, which if you did in a modern car, you'd both be in the wall. Um, but yeah, it's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great bit of footage. But um, yeah, so I, I just thought, as you say, he kind of he delivered, but I don't think it was out, outstanding. And then the following year, if he'd retired then, he'd almost be more of a candidate than if than the fact that he hung around for next year to just be awful. I want to throw a couple more names. One of them actually you mentioned in your piece is sort of he would have been on your long shortlist, as it were, for for the top ten. But Jose Frolan Gonzalez, so is the accolade of being the first driver to win a world championship Grand Prix for Ferrari enough to? get him in contention obviously he had good good results I decided that but that's the main like his epithet if you like he's a difficult one because I do think he's underrated by history I think he's one of the best drivers of the 50s but his impact on uh, yeah and obviously he's a uh, it's very is a key point isn't it win number one is a is a milestone uh, and he was great that day in fact he was really good at Silverstone because his other Grand Prix win came against the Mercs at, at British Grand Prix 1954 so you know Gonzalez on his day I think was up there with uh, Fangio and uh, Alberto Ascari but he wasn't as consistently good yeah, Ascari was the team leader when they were together um, and actually as I understand it Gonzalez off because Ascari's car broke I think in that race and, and, and they were going to put Ascari in it because you could do drive changes and Ascari said no you know, this is his day he's doing the business um, but that wasn't every day and Ascari had the, had the edge on him you know, most, most of the time so it's if you're doing the top ten Ferrari milestone moments, like you'd you have to start with win number one, right? But it was it was coming. The rate the win was coming with the three seven five. It's a four and a half liter unsupercharged car against the very like one and a half miles per gallon. I mean, you know, environmentalists would rightly say, what the hell with the Alpha one five nines? And they were going to get beaten eventually. It just so happens that Gonzalez was having his good day uh, at the moment that 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 uh, opportunity arrived. At the top of the recording, I did promise that I'd be deliberately obtuse and play devil's advocate, but no place for Tatsuo Nubilari, who was obviously Ferrari dash alpha as opposed no, to do, a constructor. No, you do, you do raise a very good point, which is um, uh, this is Ferrari as a constructor, not as a team. 
partly because the list was long enough already. <laughs> you know, when I started putting this together, I thought, oh God, I should make it a top 15 or a 20 because there are so many great names that could be in it. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a cop out because I've done 10s with everyone else. I've just got to knuckle down and make some decisions. So one of the decisions was I'm not going to make my life even harder by keeping Scuderia Ferrari when it was the Alfa Romeo team in the 30s because Nuvolari would, Nuvolari would have to be in it um, and take another slot. Um, so that's why he's not there. Um, can I also rifle? So I did uh, win ratio as a, as a decent metric of how drivers fared. So the lowest one of the drivers in the top 10 is Kimi Raikkonen at eight. So 10 wins from 151 Grand Prix. Is, is that not a product because of the fact that the calendar is longer though? In, yeah, there is, there, is, there is an element of that, but it's, uh, that's equates to 7%. So the ones to miss out, some of the, which we just discovered, Phil Hill, three wins from 31 starts, so 9%. Rene Arnoux, three wins from 32, so that's 9% with a bit of rounding. Mansell, three from 31. 9%. Rubens Barrichello, 9 from 102, about 9%. Jackie X, 6 from 55 Grand Prix. Uh, Peter Collins, 3 wins in, in 20 races. Uh, uh, and then sort of some of the some of the big hitters, a bit of recency bias. Rubens Barrichello, probably hard to argue because he was essentially well, the de facto number two in comfortably the best car for a few seasons. Massa's an interesting case, I think, for, you know, for 10 seconds was was a champion um uh, and and in and you know sort of really came from behind against Raikkonen probably embarrassed is a strong word but was was found out by Alonso sort of whatever whatever significant or the prowess that Massa had during 2008-2009 whether he lost his edge because of the crash but Alonso really did triumph over him and uh, I imagine there's a few people getting a bit sort of more nervous. than more than a few, if I yes. think who you could possibly be referring to. A few to now, people right? getting nervous. They're up to number six in this list, and Sebastian Vettel hasn't featured, so he must be second behind the the obvious winner, right? <laughs> Kevin Turner. There's a lot of ground to cover there, right? So most of those names, I think you could you can say they were like Massa beaten comprehensively at one point during their Ferrari careers by a teammate. Yeah. Uh, I, I think Massa was fantastic in in 2008, and he was a candidate for the for the list. If he, he's, he's sort of in that 15 to 20 range. Shouldn't have spun off in Malaysia, should he? That was really what cost him. Yeah, just, well, just I think the best driver of 2008 was actually Robert Kubica. Um, it wasn't Lewis or Felipe, but uh, yeah. So, but I think the, the the obvious one we have to talk about because he's not on the list is Sebastian Vettel, and I know that I've got some stick for this, but I'm, this one I'm pretty confident about, to be honest. So, uh, I get the only thing. The only point I would say is why does Prost make it? And Vettel doesn't because Vettel was more of a factor in his downfall and failure to win the title than Alain Prost was specifically 2018. Specific. Well, let's go through it. So 2015 resurrects career after being destroyed by Daniel Ricciardo at Red Bull. Joins Kimi Räikkönen at Ferrari. Turns him over quite comfortably. Good season. Wins races. Yep, Vettel's back. Wonderful. 2016 car not as good as he thinks it is. Can't really be bothered. Bit lacklustre. Quite. a quite a bit during that season 2017 Ferrari are back they needed a perfect season to win the championship they didn't get one partly it was Carr partly it was Seb Singapore misjudgment but you'd say he'd big, needed big a old misjudgment. big misjudgment but he needed a lot of luck to win that championship the thing that really the two things that really nail it for me as to why he's not on the list one is 2018 Fernando Alonso takes Lewis Hamilton to the title decider in that car I believe Lewis Hamilton takes Lewis Hamilton to the title decider in, in that car Vettel lost that championship. That wasn't a Ferrari failure. That was German Grand Prix falling off in the lead. Hungarian Grand Prix out qualified by the Mercs in the wet. 
uh, Monza getting all you know Kimi was having his one one of his rare days at that point where he was he was in the mood right having just been told he was going to lose his drive. yeah Kimi you're sacked great for now can you get out of Seb's way mm. and Seb Seb lost his head a little bit Lewis took the opportunity I think that was Lewis's best season the driver the driver made the difference. You know, uh, Mercedes came on strong at the end of the year, so it may you could argue that Hamilton would have won the championship anyway. But what should have been happening is that Hamilton and Mercedes should have been eroding a Ferrari Vettel points advantage, and then it's a it's always different mentality if you're defending a you know Fernando Alonso did this brilliantly at Renault. You get that early lead and you defend it, you accumulate points, and you put the pressure on the people chasing because they have to take the risks either with reliability or moves. And with his own mistakes, he handed Hamilton the initiative. And Hamilton knew that he psychologically had Vettel beaten. So the next person on our list, number five, Fernando Alonso, the reason he isn't world champion at Ferrari is because of Ferrari's shortcomings. The reason that Sebastian Vettel wasn't world champion at Ferrari, partly due to Vettel's shortcomings. And, of course, he then got blown away in his first season by Charles Leclerc. So, Matt, do you agree with uh, with that assessment from Kev? Yeah, I do. I think, you know, in, in any walk of life, right, you're judged by whether or not you make the most of the tools at your disposal and I, I don't think Vettel did that's a very concise way of what I've just said which is yeah he didn't optimise what, what he had whereas I think other drivers on this list did close to that and just just in case people think I'm anti-Seb because that's that's well, been he, something that I've been accused of which but that's, is, just, well, that's just modern social he, media ridiculous well, he's, he's you a have an opinion guy. on something you must be anti them he, I, I think it's worth saying that because you know I get a lot of stick about the, the, the ratings you drive after Grand Prix we automatically think they're really good they're Formula One. Well, drivers. they are really good. It's just, it's just minorly saying why one was slightly yeah, better in certain we're, circumstances. Yeah, but anyway, we're not pro or anti. Uh, yeah, that's kind. Of, yeah, we're just trying to call it as we see it based on the evidence. Hey, I got see. accused of trying to write Kimi Raikkonen out of Formula One. So he oh, probably should have. He probably should have punched me we've, as we've, he was leaving all, the paddock. We've all been accused. No, I think he was quite pleased to go. He probably thanked <laughs> you. He was pleased to go and uh, do something else, wasn't he? His interview that he gave Luke uh, uh, was was, uh, was quite illuminating on that. But. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, so I'm not anti Seb. I think he's actually a, a, a great guy, and I think he'd be great to have on a podcast like this because he actually knows more about the history of the sport than most. Well, I was going to say most F1 drivers, but probably most racing drivers, right? So he's a great, great character. And if you'd like to hang around and take a look at the Red Bull list and the Red Bull podcast that we'll be doing as part of this mini series, you'll find that he's definitely on that list. There's nothing, nothing anti Seb uh, sitting in this chair. But I, he just didn't get the job done at Ferrari, and it was partly significantly down to him I think right well I can I can I can't see him but I can almost sense our producer Martin thinking get on with this list we said we would have a cut off we're only halfway through it Okay, a quick halftime break now to remind you of today's Autosport podcast sponsor, and that is BetterHelp Online Therapy. Some people think you should wait until things are unbearable before you do something about it and maybe go to therapy. But that's not true. Therapy is a tool to utilise before things get worse. It can help you avoid any lows. And many people think that therapy is well, something that somebody else does, that they're so strong they don't need anyone else's help. But that's wrong. It doesn't mean that you can't recognise all humans have emotions. And sometimes we need somebody else's help to see things that maybe we can't see. Well, BetterHelp is a customised online therapy solution that offers video, phone, live chat sessions with your own therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, or maybe you do. It fits in with your personal preferences. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can be matched to a therapist in under 48 hours. 
Why don't you give it a try? You can see why over 2 million people have tried it and used BetterHelp online therapy and realize there is no stigma to this. Now, as always, we have a bit of a podcast code to help you out because you're a podcast listener. Helps us out because they know that you've come to them from us and it helps them sponsor more shows. We can make more content like this. That's the way it works, right? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and you can get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash autosport. B-E-T-T-E-R H-E-L-P betterhelp.com slash autosport. We'd be really grateful for you using that code so they know you came to them through us. And now, back to the top ten. You mentioned him several times. It's number five, Fernando Alonso. Drove for Ferrari between 2010-2014. Uh, started 96 races. Took 11 wins. Didn't win the title. Kev Wise Alonso at number five. And just to point out, he's the highest ranked driver in this list without a title for Ferrari I think he made Ferrari look better than it was for the time that he was there pretty much every season but most obviously in 2012 when that car was I'd say at best the third best car this season well, the, arguably fourth the caption on autosport.com of Fernando Alonso um, in the 2012 Ferrari says it was vastly inferior no. I think that's pretty fair uh, isn't it I've done a this won't surprise you to hear that I'm st- I'm, I've started a list of the greatest F1 campaigns that didn't result in a title and and Alonso's 2012 it's almost the perfect season he makes a mi- fairly minor misjudgment at Suzuka at the start and clips I think it's I think it's Kim is um, I think it's Kimmy's Lotus uh, but pretty much everywhere else he maximises his opportunities uh, he just makes much more of what he has than I think Vettel was doing at Red Bull possibly Lewis at McLaren although of course he had unreliability problems the Ferrari was at least reliable so he could get to the finish of races. So five more points in 2010, four more in 2012, and he's a double Ferrari champion. And when you look at those seasons, you think, oh, I can't really see that it's Alonso. Okay, so you, you could have the debate about was he a destructive force within the team, etc., etc. I think that's a big debate that we'll always have about Alonso's status in the sport as to how much of a part did he play in his own downfall. Um, but he was there for five years, and he created two title opportunities out of nothing, I think. And he almost won a race in the absolutely abysmal 2014 car. He had one opportunity to win the Hungarian Grand Prix. Uh, and and I had Lewis Hamilton been able to keep Daniel Ricciardo behind him for a bit longer. Uh, you know, Fernando needed Lewis to do him a, a favour. Like in Hungary, Alonso in Hungary of all places. Last yeah. Year, yeah. And, but um, to be fair to, to Lewis, I don't think he had much to fight with because Ricciardo had better, t- you know, the fresher rubber. Uh, and Ricardo won that race brilliantly, but but that was also a great second place from from uh, from Fernando. So I'm a big fan of Fernando. I think he's I think he's brilliant, and he should be a multi- much much more multiple champion than he is more than the two. Uh, so for me, if you like, if, if you say Villeneuve produced a miracle on certain days, I think Alonso has produced miracles across a couple of seasons, and that's that's why I put him ahead. Basically, fair enough, Matt Alonso at number five. Yeah, again, I sort of go over the same arguments, isn't it? I don't think his his lack of a world championship probably doesn't move. He, you know, he can't really move too much higher up this list. And also, I think particularly if you look at the top three, they they built something with Ferrari and Kev, as 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 you said. By um, I, if we look at the top three, and I know we've still got a driver to go uh, before we get there, I think those three can be really credited with building something special at Ferrari, which, you know, by your own admission in the introduction to the piece is one of the criteria. Alonso didn't do that. Not only did he not do that, did he did he take away from that? I know that 
I know that sort of um, no Marco Matiacci wasn't a great team leader for Ferrari in that point of time, but particularly you know it, it contributed around Domenicali going whether Alonso had too much of a a role in that. I'm not 100 percent sure, but he certainly probably had the power to convince the the right people that he should stay. And you know he's come back to run F1 and is pretty well respected by everywhere else. So you know there was obviously a lot of turnover, upset in the team at that time. Was Alonso a calming force in that? And would Ferrari have done better had he have been? I think yes. I think it's really difficult to say, isn't it? I mean, there's even I've even heard different stories about why he actually left the team in 2014, which we won't go into here. Um, so yeah, uh, oh, it's a classic Ferrari intrigue, politics, upheaval story, isn't it? And yeah, we, Alonso had form from McLaren, so it's easy to put two and two together and say he's a contributing factor. But yeah, maybe we'll find out in 20 years when he writes his autobiography or someone else writes theirs uh, from from the time. Lewis Hamilton is also promising a book, which I think could be uh, interesting reading. Uh, let's move on to the driver number four on this list. It's John Surtees, drove for Ferrari. Uh, between 1963 and 1966, made 30 starts, took four wins and won the 1964 title. So, Kev, why is Yeah, four? I think the top four picked themselves, really, for this list. This was the, this was the easiest part of the list. So, Surtees at four. Um, if you remember, Ferrari was in complete shambles in 1962. They lost. They Enzo fell out with his uh, team management. They basically gave him an ultimatum, expecting him to agree, and he just went, "Well, you can all go then." So he effectively sacked his entire team. They went off to set set up another team, which was disastrous as well. Um, and Certes obviously had uh, experience working with with Italian engineers through MV Augusta, who he dominated motorcycle racing with. So he had. I think he probably understood how to work with the Italians better. I think Enzo Ferrari respected Surtees and, you know, they became a race winner again in 1963, the race that he had good fortune of, of interviewing a couple of times. You know, he picked, he picked the 1963 German Grand Prix as the race of his life. That was his first World Championship win. It was Ferrari's first since the, you know, the, the sort of cataclysm, if you like, and they were rebuilding. And then he made joined forces with Fugieri, who's another key figure on this list, the designer, produced the 158. And yes, he was a bit lucky to win the 64 world title. But as he said to me, uh, when I interviewed him about it, he's like, yeah, but if you had two races in a season where the car worked from beginning to end, that was a good season. They all had problems. You know, Surtees had some problems early in the season. Clark had his problems at the end. So everyone remembers Clark failing on the last couple of laps of the Mexican Grand Prix. But Surtees started that race with a misfire, but kept going. It cleared, charged through the field. His teammate Lorenzo Bandini clashed with Graham Hill, who's the other title contender, and then got out of the way. I mean, <laughs> uh, and he finished second and won the championship. But but also, he should have won the 66 world title, I think, if he'd stayed at Ferrari. They were the one team that could have taken the fight to Brabham, but he fell out with Eugenio uh, Dragoni, who was, by all accounts, a pretty horrendous team manager. And there was a, a, a plan that Asertis was fed up with Le Mans taking such a priority anyway but he was also the best sports car driver Ferrari had so they were going to put him in the, the lead car at the start of Le Mans in 66 to, to bait the Fords the bigger engine Fords and try and get them to break and at the last minute I think Dragoni pulled Sertis in the car and put I think it might have been Bandini in it and Sertis was so incensed he drove from Le Mans to Marinello and had it out with the old man and uh, uh, they obviously must have been a respectful exchange of views because Enzo did continue to send Christmas cards and things to John afterwards but the, the, the net result was that Surtees left the team Fry just didn't have a replacement driver to lead it their, their challenge fell apart even though it was the quickest car of the season and Surtees ended up finishing second in the driver's championship even with a Cooper Maserati which was not the best car in the world 
Um, so I think he should have probably been a double Ferrari champion, but he probably was a bit ahead of his time in that Ferrari wasn't ready for a for a driver to come along, especially a Brit in Dragoni's eyes, to, re, to to build something great at Ferrari, make the most of the facilities that it had over the opposition. So uh, I think um, he should have achieved more. You might say that he was perhaps a bit argumentative, so he was a bit famous for falling out with people, but you know, he won the World Championship and, and, and his impact on Ferrari was definitely a, a positive one overall. Matt, happy with Surtees at number four? Absolutely. Slightly ironically, given the reasons for his split with Ferrari, is that Surtees probably wasn't the best team boss either. And the fact that he sort of insisted he knew how to set up his own cars better than his drivers, which was quite amusing. But I think you just look at 64 and you beat the names, or you look at the names he beat. And okay, okay, you know, in in like a a consistent scoring system, I think Graham Hill would have taken the title by one point were not for drop scores, but the p- people he beat obviously was much faster than teammate Band uh, or much better over the season than teammate Bandini, who obviously helped him to the title. But you know Graham Hill and and Jim Clark, uh, Gurney with with the with the Brabham was super fast that year, but had a lot of lot of unreliability. You know Bruce McLaren, Jack Brabham, obviously very very famous names, but hugely competitive season. There was a lot of unreliability spread throughout the field, but you know he, the fact the fact he the fact that he could convert it, I suppose, is uh, is to his credit. Well, let's move on to number three. It's Ferrari's first Formula One world champion, although a bit dubious to claim that, considering in 1952 1953 the uh, F2 regulation. Oh, you've got it in there. Good work. But it is Alberto Ascari, uh, drove Ferrari between 1950-1953 and a one-off appearance in 1954. Uh, 27 starts, 13 wins, and those two titles in 1952 and 1953. Kev, why is Ascari at number three? Yeah, just take that point. We always include the Formula 2 years of 52-53 because it was for the World Championship, right? So uh, it gets included. So we acknowledged that it was Formula 2 uh, at that point. But... Um, uh, he was, he was, I think, a match for Fangio. Uh, I think that the, each of them knew that the other one was the driver. Um, and Ascari, apart from being that, I mean, I think he was that good. Um, and I think had he not been killed uh, in a pointless sports car testing accident, what would have happened if he'd stayed at Ferrari for, or, or he'd gone with the D50s to Ferrari in 56? And would Fangio have joined? Would you have had Fangio and Ascari as a super team? I think that would have been fascinating. But anyway, yeah, he was very important. He actually starred in the very first Ferrari car so early on that he couldn't call it a Ferrari because uh, he was still the agreement that he had had uh, with Alfa Romeo that he couldn't run cars you know, with his own name. So it was the Tipo 815 in the 1940 Mini. He starred in that. He was persuaded back to racing after the war by Luigi Villarese. And by 49, I think he was the... Yeah, it was obvious that it was him and especially after Jean-Pierre Vimeo was killed, it was Ascari and Fangio. And Ascari should have been 1951 world champion. Um, Ferrari made a mistake with the wheels at the last race and uh, handed the title to Fangio. Dominates 52-53. And actually, the Ferrari 500, it was the best car. But if you look at the other results, it wasn't... It, Ascari makes it look, like all the great drivers do, they make a, a very good car look like a dominant great car. They deliver every time. But for me, the other thing that gets him on the list is his one-off return in 54 when Lancia are still trying to get the D50 to work. So you've got the reigning double world champion on the sidelines uh, and eventually he's he's able to... Uh, he's given a Ferrari 625, which was pretty hopeless against the W196 Merc and even the 250F Maserati and proceeds to fight Fangio in the Merc and Moss 
in the Maserati for the lead of the Italian Grand Prix. Now, I know Tony Brooks has criticised that drive for being a bit over the top and, and flogging the car too much, but I think it needed that to be competitive with those two cars. Even Fangio had an off in that race. Um, so I, it's just, you know, it, those are the three drives of that time. Uh, I guess Gonzalez as well. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I think he's an absolute great. He's probably forgotten a bit now, but I think you could make a case for him being Italian's greatest racing driver since the war. Um, and very key because he's, yeah, Ferrari's first first world champion. Absolutely. I think, you know, we, we talked about the role in building a team. Well, there's no better way to do that and sort of be, you know, obviously Enzo's relationship with Ascari is much more of a family connection, I think, through through his father. But, you know, that's a quite a good way to settle into the team and, and get them galvanised around you if you're, if you're pretty close with the... With the big boss, the guy who the guy who founded the the whole company, and the other thing I think, given sort of, uh, you know how how many fewer races there were in a season, the unreliability record, the thing that really stands out is that nine race wins in a row, which I think only Vettel has won in that era. What an achievement! You you know, okay, we've already talked about uh, Italy's last world champion, the only double and stuff, but I th- I think that nine consecutive race wins in that era as a winning ratio and and driving around obviously all, all you know the unreliability the the risk factor as well to pull it off i think is just incredible start yeah for a whole calendar year he was the only person to win a world championship race and one of the races he didn't win in 52 is because he was off doing the indy 500 for ferrari in a ferrari um and although it didn't end well i think the car finished he did earn the respect as as the top drivers usually do of the of the americans over there you know he came across very well um so yeah, he's an absolute absolute legend. As are the other two people on this list. Indeed. Well, let's come to them because as as we've done this uh, this sort of uh, top ten list format podcast before, it's better to reveal number two and number one exactly the same time. So, Kev, you can explain why you've got them in that particular order. So we'll come to number two first. It's Nicky Lauda drove for Ferrari between 1974-1977, took 57 starts. 15 wins, two titles in 75 and 77. Of course, nearly one in 76 as well when he came back from his horrendous accident. Um, number one, fairly obviously why number one and who it could possibly be, Michael Schumacher drove for Ferrari between 1996 and 2006, started 179 races, won 72 times and took those five titles between 2000 and 2004. But Kev, over to you. Why Lauda second? Why Schumacher won? Fairly obvious in statistical terms, but... What was your what's your reason? Yeah, for this I think there's a lot of similarities and parallels between these these so both Germanic forces, if you like, came to Ferrari and were the the two people that made Ferrari deliver on the potential that I think it's always had in the World Championship. In fact, there were other drivers who visited Maranello during the during the seventies and eighties to sign deals, and I think it was Alan Jones came out and said, "How do they not win every race?" Yeah, they had a t- test trap facility and things that, you know, Williams, Brabham, you know, going back, you know, Cooper, not so much Van Wall perhaps, but most of the teams could only dream of. How were they not winning every race? And it's for all, the, yeah, that's part of the romance of Ferrari, right? They're heroic failures as much as the successes. And Lauda was having none of that. He's like, your car's rubbish and it needs to be better. And uh, Luca de Montezemo, another factor. He was there for the Schumacher era and the Lauda era. Fugieri again, yeah, it's the, these key people, and they're um, but Ferrari's ready. I think the difference between Lauda and Certi is Ferrari's ready for it. With Montezemolo there as a young team manager, they're ready to be led by someone who was, knew what he wanted. Um, and he's the fastest driver in '74. I think it's nine poles, but appalling reliability and all sorts of ridiculous things happened to him. '75 wins the championship easily. '76, as you say, was yeah, I'm 
Huge respect to James Hunt, but Lauda would have been world champion without the crash. 77, he shows that he can do it the other way. The Ferrari wasn't really quick enough, but he showed that he was cute and could get points and won the championship that way. So, yeah, he would have had three consecutive titles, I think. And he really only left because he was upset in the way that certain members of the team reacted after his accident. So he went, well, and he he left with two races to go. So, you know, yeah, a legend built, you know, that's the first sustained long period of success. And I think that he probably laid the foundations to allow Ferrari to continue winning for the next couple of years, even though he wasn't there and racing against them at Brabham. So... That's 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 Nicky. I don't. Know, do you want to interject well, that, before I go on that, to Michael? That also does work with Schumacher as well. In that the foundations that were there in the Schumacher, Burn, Braun, Todd era continued for another couple of years with Raikkonen and Massa. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yes, yeah, so Schumacher, Schumacher's the same, but like times ten, isn't it? Just in terms of longevity and the number. I mean, the stats are absolutely ludicrous. So yeah, Lauda's wins are fifteen, fifteen wins and two world titles. I think. Well, that's that's pretty good going by anyone's standards until you scroll down and have a look at 72 wins and five titles I mean that at the time it was unprecedented period of success but for, for me Schumacher at Ferrari's got kind of everything hasn't it he's got he joins the team and they couldn't do any more than win one race a year they give him the frankly terrible F310 and he somehow comes up three wins out of it brings in you know, Ross Braun builds the team around him. Jean Tot allows him to do that as well Jean has obviously identified that he needs he needs the best people right this is how you know, Mataschitz and Red Bull but you go and get the good people and you put them in the place and you let them get on with it uh, and that's what they did and they reeled off all those wins and I think probably by the time you're, there were times during that 2000-2004 period where Michael didn't even need to drive at his best because he'd already done three quarters of the work beforehand there were the occasion you know Barrichello occasionally getting quicker and you just see it occasionally like a wet race or somewhere at Suzuka or Spa where he just let rip and just destroy the field but it's just an unprecedented level of success which has subsequently been matched by Lewis Hamilton at Mercedes so, I mean, what more? I'm not sure whether there are any other boxes he could have he could have ticked other than not do things like driving to Jacques Villeneuve at Jerez. But I don't think that really affects his position on this list. That's more a debate about where he slots into the overall greatest drivers of all time. Yeah, I think I agree with the order again. I think with Lauda, all I'd add is that sort of, you know, one of the most interesting sort of stories from, from his tenure at Ferrari is how he got the gig. It's effectively that, Regazzoni recognised that if we're going to build a super team, Lauda, having seen what he'd done at BRM, was was a critical component of that. And so, if you know Regazzoni, if up to a point, if you know you're essentially hiring a guy who's going to beat you over an extended period of time, you're obviously recognising an incredible talent rather than taking I'll have the I'll have the less good car, but I'll I'll sort of shine brighter in this team. So that's that's something. I guess you could say another way to differentiate them is I think in the 70s I think there were other drivers who were as good as Lauda in the car arguably faster whereas I think there was a period of time during Michael's career where there wasn't anyone at his level okay maybe Mick Hakkinen was as fast but I don't think uh, there was a complete as complete a driver as Schumacher until Fernando Alonso arrives and you know he's the kind of you know Schumacher's almost Alonso's hero really in that respect so I think the gap between him and the other drivers, like I was saying, Sterling must feel here in the 60s. I think the next, the other big gap is Schumacher to the rest. And I don't mean no disrespect to the, for some very good drivers during that period, but he's just the complete package. And he was, I mean, this has got to be one of the easiest number one selections I've had to do in any of the lists, really. I would have been impressed, Matt, if you had tried to argue Schumacher. I, I've uh, I dropped the argument for Patrick Tombe being being my number one. Although he did, well, played a role in two Derek Warwick's favourite teammate. 
Absolutely. Yeah, this is another series that uh, that we started recently. But I think I think on on Schumacher's like we we hate sayings in the office when we're in the office around pandemic times. We hate sayings like a uh, natural born talent because it you know it throws so much away and does a massive discredit. But like the the idea of like lightning really striking at Ferrari in that period, how they made the most of you know the refueling the the tires and just really really captured sort of that that rule set that era to to run away with it. And it's, it's sort of you know. It's, it's a legacy they've left now. It's when, you know, obviously Ferrari for its history um, and, and what it means to Formula One has always been sort of probably the most coveted team. But now it's when you're going to Ferrari, what Alonso tried to achieve, what Vettel tried to achieve is that building Ferrari to be successful in the template of Michael Schumacher. And the fact that, you know, they were the preeminent forces of their era, they've gone to replicate his success or says all you need to know why, why he's number one, I think, because it's obviously the, the wins, you know, the records are devastating, but it's how that was assembled and, you know, how they got to the end of the day, sort of, um, you know, uh, sort of towards the late 90s and then just really, really turned, turned around. I think, you know, that wet win in Spain was sort of the catalyst perhaps or or whatever, where it just goes on from there and just success after success after success. Well, well also, he was part of that culture where they did, it wasn't blame. I yeah. think Ross was involved in that as well. They didn't blame each other when things went wrong. You know, even when, I mean, there was one French Grand Prix in 96, the car blew up on the way to the grid. Like, he put it on pole, which was ridiculous. And then he didn't even start the race. A drive shaft came off in the pit lane in Canada. Um, and, and he didn't, you know, he didn't criticise the team. They just kept working away, it kept working away. And I think that that bred that bread trust and they, they all were focused on that goal and I think it's actually the it's essentially the Mercedes model right Ross yeah. Braun was involved in setting that up it's not a coincidence uh, and also when you've got Schumacher in the car when you've got the best driver in the world in the car at that moment you've got no excuses either uh, so there was always a feeling of Dijon and Lacing get Harburg and get a bit too comfortable with each other yeah actually because I think Schumacher would have fought for the world championship in the 95 car as well um, but they got no excuses like where's this guy finished if Schumacher finishes half a minute off the back of the you know off the winner you need to sort your car out and I think as well you look at who who they toppled and specifically really Adrian Newey with what he achieved at Williams and 97 was sort of a legacy of, of his of his work but then obviously you know nailing the narrow car rules at, at McLaren and for Ferrari to come over and sort of you know recognise that in order to in order to become the preeminent force they needed to play by not different rules but obviously maximize it i would say you know their biggest strength was maximizing the race format as opposed to probably the design regs as much as the f2004 is one of the one of the greatest cars of all time i think rising rising to power that way is is uh well it's also the nature of the beast i think isn't it what formula one's become yeah. it's like the law of the ministry it's all small bits you're not going to just invent a fan car anymore you've got to maximize this little thing and and schumacher was like that as a driver and i think the team was like that. but you could describe the last 30 years of formula one as adrian newey versus the best driver of the yeah. time newey versus senna newey versus schumacher and, and now we've got newey versus hamilton indeed well we've utterly blown through our time limit of 45 minutes so that's our podcast for today thank you very much kev thank you very much matt Thanks for listening today, and we'll be back soon. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Here, you'll join a community where diversity equals vitality where support and empowerment lifts spirits and propels ideas forward. Fearless, innovative, connected. UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.